Well, good morning. So this week marks the beginning of a three-week series. Uh, and this particular series is a, is a little bit different than the normal series. Uh, it's going to challenge us to, to grow a bit, and that's, which is a good thing. Because uh, many of us have been in church for a long time, and, and sometimes, whether you've been in church for a long time or whether you've just started, it can be easy to sometimes get complacent in our faith. To think that we've arrived somewhere or that, we, that we've completed a portion or maybe all of our faith journey. But what we realize is that when we, we take a good look at our faith lives, we realize we, that if we think we've arrived, we're missing out on something. We're missing out on so much of the real living that's waiting for us as we seek to continually grow closer to God and to each other. So if you were here for last week's message, you'll remember that we were challenged to enter into the spiritual transformation that's waiting for us. And over the next three weeks, we're going to encourage you to continue to do that. So this particular series actually comes from uh, the conversations we've been having as a next chapter team. As a next, so you, maybe you've been a part of those, whether you've been on council or on the team itself, or, or if you were part of those nights that we had in the West Wing a number of months ago. Uh, we've been thinking about how do, how do we as a church continue to, in, to provide opportunities, to provide all of you and ourselves opportunities to grow. And what came out of all of those conversations is that we realized that we, want, that we need to strive for deeper relationships uh, within our community. We want to pursue kingdom relationships. And so what, out of that, we wanted to focus on three major areas, pursuing kingdom relationships in three major areas. We wanted to pursue kingdom relationships with the communities that we find ourselves in, whether that's around here at Ivanrest, we're surrounded by a lot of people that, that in the, just a mile around our church that that may not know Jesus or may, may know him but know him in a way that, that's painful or, or hurtful. And so we wanted, to, to, we wanted to pursue kingdom relationships with those people. But it's not just the ones around Ivanrest. It's the ones around your neighborhoods, your house at home. We want to pursue kingdom relationships with all of those people, people who are currently outside of our community. But we realize that's not all. We want to pursue kingdom relationships with those who are inside of our community as well. Uh, the Bible describes the church as the body of Christ. And so we want to continually be striving to function in that space well. But ultimately, none of this is possible if we aren't also striving to develop or to pursue kingdom relationships with our God. And so if you're new to Ivanrest, you've been around a while, our mission is to, is to uh, grow God's kingdom through active discipleship. And that's really what, we're, what this gives us an opportunity to do well, is to pursue these kinds of relationships so we can see God's kingdom grow. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to tackle each of those areas. Uh, we're going to focus on each of them to help us understand at least aspects of what that means. And then as a church, for the next two years, we're going to put specific focuses on trying to grow in those areas, whether that be through the focus teams we have here, whether it be through the ministries we're already doing, or whether it be through the sermons that are preached. And so we want to invite you all along on that journey with us. We want to challenge you and encourage you to continue to pursue kingdom relationships in all aspects of your lives. So... Today we're going to get started, and we're going to start today by focusing on how we can, or on, on ways we can start to think about pursuing kingdom relationships within the communities we find ourselves in. Now, there, there are a number of ways that we can engage with the communities around here at Ivanrest, and, and some of which we're already doing, right? If you've been around here for a while, you know that we do a lot of things that attract people from the community. 
Uh, we have the Easter egg hunt. We have the live nativity. We have music in motion, which, is, which pulls in about 50 kids each week, and so we have, and a lot of which are not members here. Uh, we do a lot of things that, that, that draw neighbors into our space. We also have a lot of programs here that help people who come to us in need. I actually think that's one of our biggest strengths here at Ivanrest. If someone comes to Ivanrest with a need, we very quickly take care of that. And all of those things that we're already doing are fantastic. And I hope that we continue to do them and I hope we continue to strive to make way to, to do those even better than, we, than we're doing them now. And they're already great. And I don't want to take anything away from those, but this morning... We're going to talk about another aspect of pursuing kingdom relationships within the communities around us uh, that, that, maybe, that we, maybe we have an uh, opportunity to grow in just a bit. This morning we're going to talk about something that, that many, for many of us might be a little uncomfortable, uh, that, that, that might stretch us a little bit. It's a word that we don't often like to use even. It might make us a little uncomfortable. This morning we're going to talk about evangelism. Which is something that even sometimes when you even hear it, you, you get a little queasy inside. It's not really what you, what you like. Now some of you may hear that and have no problem with it at all. Uh, it might even get you a little excited. But for many Christians, the idea of evangelism or a deal of evangelizing is difficult for, to wrap our minds around. And it can actually be filled with a whole lot of baggage and a whole lot of fear uh, or misunderstanding. But if you read the Bible, honestly, you realize it's something you can't ignore. As believers, we're commissioned by Jesus himself to be evangelists. At the end of Matthew, he tells us to go out and proclaim the gospel to everyone and make disciples in his name. We're called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, or in other words, to proclaim the gospel to the world, because, because that's what evangelism is. Even the word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which actually is translated in your Bibles as the word gospel, or good news. So evangelism itself means to proclaim the good news. That's what the word means. And so we realize that that's something that we have to talk about, and it may make us uncomfortable. And so the questions that might come out of that are, okay, what's, what's that supposed to look like? Right? You may have images running through your head already. You're worried that I'm going to go tell you to leave here and start handing out tracts at the mall. Maybe you had to do that at one point in your life. Or you're going to have to all get a soapbox, stand on it on the corner, and yell. Right? Maybe that's the visions that have gone through your head. Or maybe it's the other side of the coin where you're thinking, okay, I just got to go talk to a neighbor or I've got to start building a relationship that might take, you know, 100 years before we actually talk about anything spiritual. And honestly, it might be some of those or, or all of them for that matter. I, I can't really answer that for you individually. It's going to be what God calls you to. And we're really not going to talk about the specific ways to do evangelism this morning, like standing on a corner or handing out tracts. That's going to be up to where God leads you. What, we want to, what I want to do this morning is I want, to, I want to walk through a marvelous example of evangelism from the Bible and just get some general ideas of what evangelism is supposed to look like, and then all of you can take that and do with it uh, as God leads. Because honestly, I think when we look at this story, evangelism might be a little bit different than the picture that you have in your head. So if you would, would you turn with me uh, to Luke 19? Luke 19. Now this is a story that you, if, you might have heard before. Uh, if you, were, if you had went to Sunday school as a kid, it's a story you definitely have heard before. Uh, it's one of the favorites in our Sunday school classes. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And it begins at Luke 19.1. We're just going to read that story. 
It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming, he ran to see him because since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And so, so, like I said, this is a story that you, that you may have heard before. It's a favorite one from Sunday school. I wanted to sing Zacchaeus was a wee little man this morning, but not everybody wanted to do that, so we, we skipped it. You can sing it on your own. It'll get stuck in your head for the entire day. Uh, it, it's a great story to tell kids. The song's fantastic, too, and, uh, it's a, but it's also a wonderfully beautiful teaching on evangelism if we take the time to see it clearly. If we, if we stop and break it down for a bit, it's a beautiful story because of the simplicity of it that kids can grasp on. Uh, but, if, but as it is with all scripture, if you, if you look at the layers of it, there's something else there as well. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to walk through this passage bit by bit and see what it has to offer us. So right there at the beginning, the passage begins by introducing us to a man named Zacchaeus. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about him, but it does tell us two important things. First, it says that he was a tax collector. Second, it says he was rich. Now, if you've read through the New Testament at all, you, you will, you'll quickly realize that tax collectors were not the most well-liked people of the time. And if you haven't ever read through the New Testament, I'll just tell you, tax collectors weren't the most well-liked people of the time. Actually, they were hated. People couldn't stand collect tax collectors. They, put them, they lumped them together. There's tax collectors and there's sinners, and there's really no difference between the two in the New Testament mind. Now you might be thinking, well, tax collectors aren't the most liked people now either. That, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, I'm not sure. But even if it was true, the, the, the dislike for tax collectors that you might be thinking of today is nothing like it was back then. Uh, people hated tax collectors. And here's why. So during this time, uh, taxes were collected a little bit differently. Rome was in charge. So if you were living in the land of Israel, Rome was in charge. And actually, Rome was in charge of much of the known world at this time. And what Rome would do is it would look at a particular region, whatever that region would be, and they would estimate the gross domestic output of that particular region. How much grain are they going to get? How much money are they going to make? How many people are going to be trading there? And so Rome would estimate how much money that particular region would make. And then they would apply a tax bill to them. So they would, so if they, so let's say they, they pick a number, and I actually don't know what the tax rate was in Judah at that time, but for the sake of argument, to make it easy, let's just say it was 100 talents. So Rome would look at, at Judah, and they would decide, this is how much you're going to make, and so we'll take 100 talents from you. And so the governor, or the, or the emperor, would hand the governor of Judea a tax bill. So you owe 100 talents. Uh, and now, if the governor were to not pay that, the consequences were severe. You didn't have an option. You had to pay that. 
Well, the governor didn't, or the governor of a particular region, or the king, uh, it wasn't really his thing to go and collect taxes, so he would hand that off to a tax collector, uh, a, a chief tax collector, if you will, which is what we know Zacchaeus was. And so Zacchaeus would have this bill now, this $100 that he has to pay, and he would pay it up front. So he would actually write the check himself. Now, I'm sure they didn't have checks, but he would pay it right up front. So the, the, hundred, the hundred talents or whatever it was would go to Rome, and now Rome is satisfied. They've been paid. They don't really care what happens from here on out. And so you might be thinking, well, that's not that big of a deal. That's not that much different than how we do it now. And you're right. But this is where it gets different, because this is where, this is where the, the tax collector's bad reputation comes from. So Zacchaeus, or whoever the tax collector was, is now taking care of the bill to Rome, but now it's their responsibility because, I mean, they didn't do it to be altruistic. They did it because they want to make money, right? And so now it's, their, now it's their job to collect that money back from the people. And so what they would do is, is they, would, they, would, they, they had a lot of leeway and a lot of flexibility to charge people taxes. They, they could determine how valuable something was if it was being traded through the region. They could determine how much money or how much, because realize we're not always functioning with money. They could, so you might, your taxes might be paid in grain or in other things. And they got to set the values on what that was all worth. Now, there were some restrictions. They couldn't just bleed the people dry entirely, but they did have a lot of flexibility on what they could charge. And they also had an incentive to collect more than what they paid. So let's say the tax bill was 100 talents. If a tax collector were to collect 150 talents, that extra 50 goes right in their pocket. And so you see there's a lot of incentive for the tax collector to start overcharging people. And so now imagine, from the perspective of a normal worker, normal workers at this time are right at the edge of poverty. One bad season and you're in rough shape. Right? So, so, you're, so you're living in a country under the rule of a foreign government that in your opinion is already demanding too high of a tax rate. But if that wasn't bad enough, the person that collects your taxes is living a life of luxury, right? It says Zacchaeus was a rich man. And so you see that person collecting your taxes, you realize that Rome's been paid and yet he somehow has all of this money. And if that wasn't bad enough, most of the time a tax collector would would be one of your own people. So you feel like the government's taking advantage of you. You also feel like the tax collector's taking advantage of you. And he's one of your people. In this case, Zacchaeus was a Jew. You might be starting to understand why these people weren't particularly liked. You see, tax collectors were people that operated outside of what the community saw as normal or acceptable. They operated on a different moral code and lived a life very different from the majority of Israelites. And that made a lot of people uncomfortable and actually a lot of them very angry. So then, back to the context, as we're talking about evangelism, if someone were to evangelize Zacchaeus, it would require them to interact with someone who, is, who had a different moral code, different social norms, and different kinds of value structures that many of the people, in the, even the religious people of the time, had. But it could be, and it can be very easy for people to focus closely on those differences, right? And that's why they, they dislike Zacchaeus so much. But I love that the Bible tells us here at the end that Zacchaeus was also a child of Abraham. So because sure, Zacchaeus was different from the norm in many ways, but it, 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 and some of those were significant. 
But in other ways, he was just like everybody else. Zacchaeus was a Jew. Sure, he didn't fit the Jewish norms, but as we'll see in just a minute, he was a person with the same feelings and reservations all of us have. And so the passage continues to tell us more, to tell us more about Zacchaeus. So, so Jesus was coming into Jericho, and Zacchaeus is interested. Now what, what, I, what we often think of when we hear this story in Sunday school is we, we, we think Zacchaeus was primarily interested in seeing Jesus with his eyes, right? That he just wanted to get someplace that he could look at Jesus and see what he looked like. And that is true, of course. He climbed a tree so that he could see. But if you look in your Bible, it, it'll say that Zacchaeus was interested in who Jesus was. And in, in, in both in English and in Greek has the same understanding there that, sure, he was interested in seeing what Jesus looked like, but he was interested in a lot more than that. He didn't just care what Jesus looked like. He, he was interested in what this guy was all about. He wanted to figure out what was going on surrounding Jesus. And that's significant. Because if we stop and think about that for a minute, it means a whole lot. Because this story comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. If you were to continue to read in Luke, you'll realize that the very next chapter, we're talking about the triumphal entry when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. And so we're at the end of Jesus' ministry, which means it's very likely, and we don't know this for sure, but it is very likely that this isn't the first time Zacchaeus had heard the name Jesus. It's very likely that someone had told Zacchaeus about what Jesus had been doing in the region for the past three years. Israel's not that big. And Jesus was a pretty big deal by this time. People knew who he was. Most likely, someone had an experience with Jesus and had told Zacchaeus about it. Whether it was a true story or or some made-up one, Zacchaeus was interested in who Jesus was. Now again, like I said, the Bible doesn't say that, so we don't know that for sure. But we do know, at the very least, the commotion caused by those following Jesus into Jericho made Zacchaeus wonder what that thing was all about. There's a big group of people following Jesus around, and Zacchaeus goes, God, what's going on there? We do know that's the case. There was something strange about those surrounding Jesus, and Zacchaeus was interested in finding out what that was all about. And I would argue that's the same today. That there are people all around us who are interested in this Jesus person. Now, I want to be really clear. They're not These same people that might be interested in this Jesus person are not interested in being told how messed up their life is or how how sinful they are or how, how much they're risking the fires of hell. They're not interested in that. I'll tell you, they're also not really interested in being adding a whole bunch of rules to their life. People who are just interested about who Jesus is, the biggest pushback I usually get when I'm talking to somebody wrestling with faith is, I don't want to do all of these things. These rules. And honestly, some people that are interested in who Jesus is aren't actually interested in following him yet. They're just interested in seeing what it's all about. You see, we live in an area, and this isn't the case everywhere, where it would be difficult for you to find someone who has never heard the name Jesus before. Most people have heard about him. Now, that doesn't mean that they've heard correct things. They, 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 may have an understa- they may know the name Jesus, that wouldn't be a shock to them, but their understanding of who he is is completely different than who he actually is. Sometimes they may have heard good things, sometimes they may have heard bad things or had bad experiences, or sometimes they may have just seen a bunch of Jesus followers doing something and they're interested about what's going on. 
But in my experience, once I get to know someone, I'm constantly amazed by how many questions they already have about faith. I don't have to spend a lot of energy stirring those up because people are already thinking about that. Which is biblical as well. Romans 1 says, All men know deep down inside of themselves that God exists. But some suppress it. See, the Holy Spirit is working on the lives of those around you. There's something deep down inside every person that makes them curious about their creator. Even if some of us suppress it a lot harder than others. So as we reach out to those who don't, know, don't yet know Jesus as their Savior, it's important for us to foster that curiosity. To engage with people in the areas that they're already wondering about. Which leads us to the next question. How do we even get into that space? Well, let's keep moving in the story. So we see Zacchaeus was interested in who Jesus was. But he couldn't get a good look at him at this part. And this is the part of the story our kids life because he, like, he was so short. So he can't get a good look at Jesus. And so what does he do? He climbs a tree. But if we slow down and think about that for a minute, we realize some things as well. We already told, we already, we've already noticed that Zacchaeus was really interested in who Jesus was. Meaning, not just what he looked like, meaning the tree isn't your best option, right? So if you want to figure out who this Jesus guy is, sure, you can climb a tree and you'll see him and he's going to walk underneath. We know that's the case, but you're going to get him for a very short amount of time, aren't you? Because presumably he's going to keep going. Right? So you'll I mean, you're probably walking slow. There's a lot of people around. You might see a miracle maybe if he decides to do one within your eye shot. But it's not the best way to get to know who this guy is. You're just going to get a glance. Then you have to run to another tree and try all over again. The best option for Zacchaeus would have been to ask the people around Jesus to let him through. So that he could engage with, he would have to engage with the community around Jesus. Hey, I really want to know who this guy's all about. Would you guys let me through so I could see? But like we said, that would, that would force him then to engage with the community around Jesus. And we already know from the beginning he wasn't comfortable doing that. And we get why, right? Many members of that community around Jesus didn't like him. Probably hated him and maybe even deservedly so. Zacchaeus understood that he lived a life outside of what the rest of the community thought was right. And so in this case, it keeps him from intentionally entering into it. For Zacchaeus to be reached, for Zacchaeus to actually experience who Jesus is, it required someone to reach out to him. And in this story, it was Jesus himself. And maybe you're already starting to put the pieces together. You can see how this particular story relates so well to the, to the place we find ourselves in. You see, because we're surrounded by people who are curious about this Jesus guy. But many of them don't feel comfortable just walking into a faith community. Perhaps because they've already begun to see that their life doesn't match what the Bible says. Or perhaps, some, like, like in the story of Zacchaeus, someone in the church has, dis, has expressed their dislike or hatred towards them. Or maybe they had a bad experience, or maybe they're just uncomfortable around crowds. I'm not sure. The point being, 
If we think evangelism is only about making really attractive events for our community, we're missing something big. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said at the beginning, those things can be great. Those events that draw people into our space are very, very similar to the crowds around Jesus that make people interested. They can pique someone's curiosity. But often, to really engage, with the, really engage someone with the good news, with the gospel, we have to reach out to them. Which, if we continue on with the story, is exactly what Jesus does. And I want to look really closely at how he reaches out. So to continue with our story, Jesus is walking down the path. And he gets to the tree that Zacchaeus is hanging out in. And he stops. And I, would love, I love how this interaction goes. Because he looks up at Zacchaeus and he calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus, get out of there. Come on, we're going to go have some dinner. Okay, fine, he invites himself over for dinner. But, but that's okay, that's okay in this culture. That's not rude. But what I want to focus on is I want to focus on what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is. He had, like we just said, he called him by name. He knows a bit about Zacchaeus' deal. He knows he's a tax collector. He knows he's wealthy. And, he, and anytime you have a wealthy tax collector, you know they're morally suspect. Jesus knows all of that, and yet he doesn't mention any of it, does he? Jesus doesn't walk up to the tree and say, hey, Z." they probably would have talked like that, I'm sure. You know and I know there's some stuff in your life and it's not okay. Yeah, I'm going to need you to fix that. And so if you're interested in knowing me, uh, here's a list of five things. I need you to take care of these five things. If you want to be part of this community, if you want to be part of, of knowing me, get these five things right. I'll come back in a week to check in and if you've worked those things out, we'll see what we can do. Right? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't... He doesn't he doesn't stir up Zacchaeus' past or even his present. He just invites him to hang out, doesn't he? He invites him to share in a culturally very significant event. Jesus invites, Jesus invites Zacchaeus to be part of the community that Zacchaeus had longed to be a part of from afar. And he does it without pretense, without condemnation, without doing anything for that matter. He doesn't open by hashing through Zacchaeus' past or his present. He doesn't start by telling him that he's a sinner in the fires of hell or demand, immediate, uh, demand that he immediately conforms to the religious rights or norms. He doesn't do that. He just says to Zacchaeus, hey, why don't we go grab a bite to eat? And notice Zacchaeus' response. And unfortunately, in this case, the, the, the NIV says that he welcomed him gladly. And we can just... I think that underplays it a bit. I think it's a, it's a translation that doesn't particularly help us in this case because the Greek word here is karo, which means joyfully or with rejoicing. Right? So it's not that he just says, yay, I'm happy that you're coming. He's, he's overjoyed. It's pouring out of him. I like to imagine that Jesus says, hey, let's go have some dinner. And Zacchaeus says, okay, why don't you finish up your teaching? I'm going to go get prepared for you. Just, you can be over an hour or so. And I like to imagine Zacchaeus running all the way home, closing the door, and then just going, yeah. Right? He's, that's how pumped he is. He's overjoyed that Jesus is coming. He can't contain it. That's all contained in the Greek word karo. And I want to focus a lot on this part because the, this is one of the most important things for us to take away from this story. When we're sharing the gospel with those around us, we're not required to have all the answers. 
We're not, to re- we're not required to ca- condemn someone's current lifestyle. We're not required to have a perfect speech or sales pitch. All we're asked to do, all we need to do, is to introduce someone to Jesus. To invite them to meet the Jesus we follow. Now for us, of course, Jesus isn't here physically anymore. I get that. We can't just sit down and have a meal with him like Zacchaeus did. But we do know that the Bible tells us that the church, us, we're called to be the hands and feet of Christ here on earth. We're called to be a kingdom of priests. Or in other words, though imperfectly, we're called to represent Jesus here on earth. And so what that means in this context is it means that we need to be willing to share our experiences with Jesus to those who we're introducing him to. Or the Bible says we're called to be a witness. Because isn't that what a witness is? A witness at its core is very simple. To witness something is to experience something and to tell someone else about it. That's it, right? Isn't, that's what the Gospels are. Hey, we experienced some things. We saw some things. Let me tell you about them. And the fact of the matter is, each and every one of you, whether you've been a Christian for a day or your entire life, has experienced Jesus in one way or another. You all have faith stories. And notice how what I said there, you all have faith stories. We like to, whenever we talk about, a, usually we talk about a faith story and we call it testimony. And that's a thing, we all have a testimony. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about faith stories. You have small stories of how Jesus has worked in your life. Some of them really small and some of them more, a little bit bigger. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling to think of what those might be, Your challenge for today is to seriously look back and spend some time reflecting on your life. Look for the areas in which God clearly was there for you, or where he blessed you, or where your joy was abounding, or or where you experienced the unexplainable shalom or peace of God, or your community came around you to support you in a time of need. Those are faith stories. I hear so often, People saying, well, I don't really have a fantastic faith story. And what we mean by that is we hear these big conversion stories of a life that does a 180. And we think all of our faith stories need to be like that, right? The drug addict that now is completely transformed and is now preaching the gospel. Now, those are fantastic stories, of course. But not all of our stories need to be like that. A simple story of how God got you through tragedy or sustained you through an unsustainable situation or how your church family gave support or even how God has consistently and repeatedly throughout your entire life blessed you in small ways. All of those are powerful and dramatic stories that can be equally helpful to someone as the 180 turnaround. Because the fact of the matter is each of you has faith stories and they're all important. You see, we've made evangelism and witness so much harder than it needs to be. We've made it about big questions and right answers. Now, of course, there's a time and a space to help someone answer answer the tough questions of the Bible. But honestly, some of you might not even be called to be the one to answer those questions. You may have to push them towards somebody else who can. Evangelism isn't about completely changing the way someone is living or getting them to believe all the right things. It's simply about introducing them to the Jesus you follow. It's bringing them to the dinner table or to the baseball game or out for a cup of coffee and sharing your stories. Sharing the good things God has done in your life 
or in other words, sharing the good news or the gospel or the euangelion. Because the beauty of the Christian life is that we aren't the ones that actually do any of the changing of other people, which we'll see at the end of the story. So Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And we're told that it's a party of unmentionables, right? The religious folk even grumble a bit. They say, oh my goodness, there goes Jesus eating with those people. Or they don't like it. But Jesus goes to dinner, and he goes to dinner with people outside of the religious norm. And what I love about this story is the Bible isn't interested in telling us at all what they talked about. We know Jesus stayed the night. They must have had a bunch of conversations. But the Bible doesn't share any of them with us. Instead, it shows us the conclusion of the story. Jesus invited Zacchaeus to get to know him, and in that meeting, he was changed forever. It wasn't an argument or getting things properly orientated. It was about a genuine, real meeting with our Savior. You see, we put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes to evangelism. We get nervous because we're going to be outside of the norm. We focus on ways that we're different. And granted, those things can be real. I'm not going to pretend like they're not. But in all the ways that people are different, we're all fundamentally the same. We're all loved by God and created by him. When we think about evangelism, we can psych ourselves out for reasons that don't really matter. Because we can feel like we won't know how to make all the appropriate arguments or say the right things. And like we said before, there's a time and a space for that, but we recognize that people are just curious about Jesus, about who he really is and why he's important to us, and what this church thing is all really about. Romans 1 says, all know, yet some suppress. And so our job is not to make sure that we figure it all out first. It's not, it's, not to, it's not about making sure that we have all the perfect answers lined up or making sure that our lives are spotless before we step out. Our job is simply to reach out. To reach out to someone who might be hesitant to enter into our community. They might see this, that someone who might see our community as hostile to them. We're supposed to reach out and share our journey with those people. Share our honest witnesses with them. To share a story with them. Our job is not to change anyone or, get, or to get them to believe all the right things. Our job is simply to introduce them to the hope we profess, to introduce them to the living Savior. Because like in the story of Zacchaeus, that's where change happens. It's not our responsibility to change anyone. It's our responsibility to point them towards Jesus, and he does the heavy lifting from there. So as we focus on pursuing kingdom relationships with those outside these walls, with those who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior, let's not make it harder than it needs to be. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to change anyone. You simply need to love someone and be willing to share the good news of what Jesus has done in each of your lives. Focus on all the good things that God has done and be an honest witness to his goodness to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Father God, give us courage. Courage to, to, to share our stories with those who don't yet know you. God, give, 
God, I pray that for each of us, you give us discernment so that we can see clearly all of the good things that you've done in our lives. Help us to see how good you've been to us. And then reach out and share those stories with those that don't know. We pray all these things in your Son's name through the power of your Spirit. Amen. At this time, we're going to watch a short video that's going to help us understand a little bit about what this storytelling thing is all about. Uh, Yep, and so we'll play the video now.